So it's a beautiful day in Washington, D.C. at Combined Sections Meeting for the year 2019. And I'm very happy to be sitting with Dr. Margaret Schenkman, the uh, Ann Chumway Cook Lecturer for this year, and with Dana Lott, a member of the Historian Committee for this interview. And my name is Britta Smith. So at a lecture today uh, with Dr. Evan Cohen, he frequently said, quote, flexibility is the cornerstone of mobility. And I, I, I get the sense that you adopted that much earlier in your work with Parkinson's when you looked at axial mobility. And one of your philosophies was relaxing into motion rather than stretching into increased motion. Can you talk about that a second? Sure. Think about people with pain or people with Parkinson's. Um, moving's hard. People with Parkinson's don't move much, and so they become stiff. People with pain are uncomfortable, so they don't move, so they become stiff. With Parkinson's, the not moving is because the muscles are on too much, and they're just on all the time, but not on to move, just on in a very stable way. And so the way I thought about it, and I came to it from having known Feldenkrais practitioners who worked with people with painful conditions that were so used to stretching, but if you could just relax, the muscles will relax. And if you gradually relax them over time, intentionally, they will get longer. So rather than go in and forcefully stretch, why don't we help people learn how to move in a relaxed way and increase what they can do in a very gradual way. So if you think of muscles that are on too much all the time, if, you, if you're learning how to get them to relax, then you can actually become more relaxed all the time. And the people that I've worked with um, who have Parkinson's, who've done this over prolonged periods of time and kept doing it, have, have gained their mobility back and retained it for years. But it does take deliberately doing it. During your lecture, you kind of made a, a call to physical therapists to determine how to assist chronic conditions for the long haul. What are your visions for our profession to um, act on behalf of this population? I think we have to really think differently about how we treat people with chronic conditions. We need to figure out what it is that they need in the short term, whether it's flexibility, strengthening, cardiovascular conditioning, they need us to get them on the right program. But then they need someone probably with lesser um, training, lesser capability to help them to keep going. Mm -hmm. I, but then they need to come back and see us just as they come back to see the neurologist Mm -hmm. whether it's once a year, whether it's four times a year, they should be coming to see us and having us tweak their programs and help them and guide them. We should be available to them in some way or another um, as they have questions so that they really can become lifetime exercisers, lifetime mobility people, lifetime have that, have that guidance that requires a skilled um, practitioner. Uh -huh. So that's not how we practice for the most part right now. 
but I dream of the day when it is just expected that they will come and see us and they'll be referred to us and they will be reimbursed by insurance for it mm -hmm. because it'll keep them more functional. That's my dream. Yeah. But, but coming right in for now, a physical what every year. What? <laughs> it's just like they're yeah. coming in for a physical every yeah. year. Or they go to the neurologist every four months to change their medications. Right. Mm -hmm. Or whatever. But right now, what they're doing is going to a trainer or a massage therapist or someone else, mm -hmm. and they're not getting the benefit of what we could help them with. Mm. So I know that you are also looking at treatment of newly diagnosed Parkinson's, de novo Parkinson patients, or patients with Parkinson's, uh, those not on medications yet. Uh, is this relatively new as a population that you've been looking at? Yeah, we began the we began a study of um, to test whether high intensity exercise is um, useful for them. And for pragmatic reasons, just as I started with flexibility with Parkinson's because I wanted to know about the trunk, <laughs> I wanted to know about um, endurance exercise for people with Parkinson's. And if you work with them before they're on medication then any changes you're seeing should be because of what you're doing and not because of changing medications. So it's pragmatic. But it became clear to me working with them, um, and it's been clear for quite a while, that the sooner we can begin to work with people, the better. Because by the time they're diagnosed, they already have problems that are subtle enough that the neurologist isn't really seeing them. But as a physical therapist, we can see them. Mm. Would you anticipate that we're able to change the neuroplasticity of the disease with this early intervention? Is that even a, that's, a thought? That's the question. Are we? That's exactly the question. If we get people on high-intensity exercise early, can we slow down the changes in the brain? Right. That is really hard to study because the PET scans that you would need or the um, MRIs or whatever you're going to use are so expensive mm -hmm. that to um, scan them before and scan them after is 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 just prohibitively expensive. Um, if as the medical profession becomes more understanding of how powerful exercise is, it may get easier to talk people into spending that kind of money to find out, does it actually slow down the disease? That's wonderful. So what other areas in Parkinson would you like to see research be directed toward? Oh my gosh, it could be directed <laughs> in so many ways. <laughs> um, we need to understand why people with Parkinson's are fatigued, and we need to figure out how we can help them. And so far, that has eluded physiologists, physical therapists. We just don't know that answer. Mm. We need to understand how people with Parkinson's, how we can help people um, change their behaviors. And Parkinson's is particularly hard because they have, um, associated with the disease, they can have reduced motivation and increased depression. And that makes it really hard to become a self-motivator to take care of your health rather than just take a pill. Mm. And so we also need to figure out who can do it and who can't do it. And how do we know which one? Because to try to spend a lot of time getting someone to do something they're not going to do is not productive. 
Or the other way to ask it is, are there a group of people where if we knew how to approach them better, we could get them to want to do it? There's just a lot to translate what we've learned into real life. And I think that needs a lot of good attention. I'd like to take a left turn to coin the phrase that you used during your, your lecture. Um, you say that you took a real left turn um, in getting involved with investigations of heartfulness, meditation, uh, in terms of stress relief and health responses. Can you talk to us a little bit more sure. about that? Well, I've meditated um, intentionally, seriously, whatever you want to call it, for 30 years now and have been a trainer in meditation for 25 or more than that um, through this heartfulness practice, which is a very unknown practice because it's not commercial, but it's um, been just hugely important in my life. And as I'm moving toward um, reducing what I'm doing in terms of research in Parkinson's and the work I've been doing, um, the Heartfulness Institute has been developing, just as the board was developing at the time that I was on it, is trying is coming into its own. And we're looking at um, research. You know, there's a lot of research out there about mindfulness now, or there is some, not a lot, but it's, but it's well known now. Heartfulness is not. It's a very different kind of practice. And... Um, We'd like to understand, we'd like to, I, I, experientially I understand it really deeply, but in terms of evidence about it, there's very little. And so I'm helping to begin to move into um, research in that area. And one of the things that um, a neurologist colleague of mine who has been practicing this meditation for even longer or the same amount of time, approached me recently and said, you know, it would be great to look at the epigenetics of heartfulness mm -hmm. because we know that as we, um, we know that environment affects genetics. So if you're in a family, and there are four generations of people who have been meditating in heartfulness, um, is there a way to study this? So we've been grappling with how do you study epigenetics and learning the methodology of it and really um, beginning to figure out how to set up some studies mm. to look at the effects of it. And We're also, go ahead. Oh, what is the difference between heartfulness and mindfulness? Mindfulness, as I understand it, you learn to observe your mind and direct it. I, I, that's a sort of very superficial explanation, which is that but you become more conscious of where your mind's going and you try to learn how to um, let go of things that you don't need to be worried about and reduce your stress that way. <clears throat> Heartfulness teaches you to pay attention to your heart and allow your mind to stop directing us because the heart actually knows everything. The mind only knows what you put into it. It turns out that the heart is hugely broad, but we don't know our hearts because we don't pay attention to them. Hmm. And so the more I've practiced this meditation, the more I work from inner knowledge, 
that has nothing to do with what my mind is telling me. Mm. And it's a much more intuitive way of being, and it allows it allows for a much fuller um, experience of life than I could have imagined. That is beautiful. This is the end of the abbreviated version of the interview with Margaret Shankman. Download the full interview to hear about her work on the sit-to-stand movement, her work in the neuro-ICU, and the development of her published book. Thank you for listening.